This is God's holy word. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And let's begin with prayer. Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, we admit our need for help, and we ask you, our Father, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that you would send your spirit, that your spirit would work in our hearts, granting us understanding, discernment of what your word is saying here to us, and that we would properly follow and obey and apply this word to our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have come to chapter 14 now in the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus is once again at a meal. We have seen the Lord Jesus dining quite often in the Gospel. In, in Luke 5, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. In chapter 7, he was anointed by a sinful woman while at a meal at the home of a man named Simon. In chapter 9, of course, we see Jesus hosting a meal on a hillside, feeding 5,000 with bread and fish. At the end of chapter 10, there is that memorable uh, meal in the home of, of Mary and Martha, where Jesus taught uh, those two sisters and all that were listening there uh, and learning from him uh, the prime importance of that, of listening to his words. And then in Luke chapter 11, Jesus was invited to dine at another Pharisee's house, and he ended up calling out the Pharisees and teachers of the law there who were all at that meal as hypocrites. That had to be an interesting meal to be at. But despite what happened the last time a Pharisee invited him to his house, here in chapter 14 we find Jesus once again invited to the home of another Pharisee for a meal, and it's on a Sabbath day. Uh, one author observed, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And that sure seems to be true, as we've just noticed here. Meals were 
a big part of life back then. And they still are today. Meals provide structure for the lives of many families like ours who have young children in the home. Meals are also an excellent opportunity to spend some focused time with others, either in your family, around your kitchen table, or with friends and uh, acquaintances, maybe at a restaurant or in your own dining room. Meals are intimate and they're often informative. They provide focused time for people to be face-to-face with each other, undistracted, talking and listening to each other, and, of course, enjoying good food. It's often around dinner tables and over good food that we truly get to know other people. And quite often, as we visit with others in this way, we also learn a little bit more about ourselves through the questions that that others may ask of us and then our our thoughts and responses to those questions. We're often given the the opportunity to see things about others and ourselves we might not have, have seen before. So I want you just to think back over your life. My guess is that you can remember some significant meals that you have enjoyed with others, where you have learned much about them as well as about yourself. As I was reminiscing this week about that, um, I thought back to uh, uh, the first meal that I shared with my wife Greta and her parents. And then that led me also to think about another meal I shared early on with Greta and her grandmother who made us her famous meatloaf. I learned more about Greta, and I learned a few things about myself as well. For both of those meals took place before I had ever asked my wife Greta out on a date. You know, meals just seem to be divinely appointed times for work to be done in our hearts. Through our conversations with others and our responses, To those questions, we can get to know ourselves a little better and even see things that we didn't know were there right in front of us. So I believe that is what Jesus is doing at this meal in Luke 14. We we will stay at this meal for, for two sermons because it goes all the way to verse 24, but this morning we're just focusing on the first 11 verses. And we'll see Jesus use this meal to ask questions, to make observations, and and to reveal to those at the meal with him some important knowledge for the others to learn about who he is as well as about who they are. Okay? So our main theme from these first 11 verses of chapter 14 is that listening to Jesus' words will help us to see that we have a great need for God's mercy. We listen to Jesus' words, we'll see that we have a great need for God's mercy. First uh, six verses here, we see our legalistic tendencies will blind us from seeing and showing God's love and mercy. So we have uh, this issue here of how blind we can be to our own need for God's mercy, and, and one of those things that blinds us is our legalistic tendencies that we see here revealed in the the Pharisees and lawyers who are at this meal. 
Verse 1 through 6 again. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy or edema. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So here it is. It's a Sabbath, which is the day set aside by God for his people to rest from their labors and to worship him. It was a day for them to remember how God had delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. It was a day for his people to remember that they were holy, that they were set apart, distinct from the rest of the world, for they were God's chosen people. And he had been gracious to them in saving them and making them his covenant people. But by the time that Christ uh, came on the scene, for many of the Jews, the day had also become a day that was heaped up with burdens of what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. It became a day where some of the people would try to, to set themselves apart as being more dedicated to God than other people by how closely they followed not just the law of keeping the Sabbath day holy, but by following man-made requirements of what you could and couldn't do on the day. And here was Jesus. It was Jesus who had been practicing a ministry of mercy and, and healing for those who were enslaved and who were suffering, and he was invited over to a Pharisee's home, and there just happens to be a man there who was suffering with dropsy. This was a painful form of edema where his body was retaining fluid in his, in his face, hands, and, and feet, which, which causes great pain and discomfort. Now, was this man there as an invited guest by, by the host to this meal? Was he invited for the, for the specific purpose of the Pharisees to, to test Jesus, to see what he would do? You know, would Jesus heal the man or not on the Sabbath? Again, look at verse 1. It says, they were watching him carefully. They're watching him here. So maybe it's a setup. Or maybe... Maybe this man was just kind of hanging around outside because, of course, in, in those days, um, houses were way more open than ours are. So when you had a meal, you know, there'd be people gathering around outside kind of looking in and seeing what's going on, especially if Jesus is there. Jesus has been attracting a lot of attention, a lot of crowds. So maybe this man is just, just out, part of the crowd outside and Jesus no, notices him. We don't know. All we know is that Jesus, once again, takes the initiative he takes the initiative here and brings attention to the man who has been suffering with this painful condition and asks a simple yes or no question of the Pharisees and these experts in the law. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Simple yes or no. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, Jesus wasn't looking for their permission here to, to heal this man. He's just making it very clear to all who were there where everyone stood on this. He's giving them the opportunity to make a statement of their faith. Again, it's a simple yes or no question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Yes or no. If, if you are able to help someone on the Sabbath, should you help them? 
if you're able to even heal someone on the Sabbath, should you heal them? Now look at verse 4. Luke tells us their response. But they remained silent. No one answered Jesus. They refused to answer the question. No one wants to be put on the record for what they really think. For these Pharisees, it was a question that they really couldn't answer. They all knew how they would be thought of if they answered the question in one way or the other. They didn't like either of the answers. If they said, yes, yes, it is lawful, yes, you you should do this, then they may be branded as lawbreakers, as men who didn't take the Sabbath seriously, and thus then didn't take the law of God seriously. But if they answered no, it's not lawful, you, you, you can't do this, well then that would reveal their, their cold-heartedness to people like this man and others who are in need of help. So they thought they would play it safe. Play it safe, we'll just not say anything. We'll just remain quiet. But in their silence, of course, it revealed where their hearts really were. And they were not for showing mercy to this man or to anyone who has a need like this. Jesus shows, of course, where he stands, right? He shows where he stands on the controversy pretty clearly. He heals him immediately. He sets this man free from this horrible condition. He restores this man to health and provides him with the ability to work and serve and care for his family without pain and difficulty that the condition must have caused him before. Jesus also, in one instant, removed from this man that social stigma that his condition cursed him with, as, as so often happens. People that are in a condition like this would be, would be looked down upon, would be, would be, would be pitied. People, people like this would, would, would possibly even be, be thought of having done something wrong to have deserved this condition. And Jesus just takes this away instantly and sends a man home to rejoice with his family. This will be a Sabbath day that he and his family will never forget. And then Jesus asks another question to the Pharisees. Once again, he doesn't get an answer from them. This question is a bit more confrontational. It's a question which implies that everyone should agree with the answer. It's a question which implies that there should be not any debate whatsoever on the answer to the question. He says, which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? The obvious answer is, of of course, of course, we would immediately pull out our son if he fell into a well. We'd even pull out our, our animal if he fell into a well. Uh, it doesn't matter what day it is. The right thing to do there immediately, instinctually, is to save our son or even our animal. <laughs> no one's going to tell their son, oh, man, <laughs> sorry, boy. But it's the Sabbath, you know, just hang on down there for a few more hours. Okay, once the sun sets, I'll be back, and I'll come help you out then. Jesus points out 
the absurdity of that kind of response. I mean, there would be something glaringly wrong with any father who would ignore the cries of his son who fell in a well and not help him because it happened to be the wrong day of the week. If someone is in need of help, even if it is a Sabbath, you go and you do what you can to help them. God is not against helping people. But Jesus demonstrated by healing this man with edema that God is for being merciful to those who are in need. What Jesus was doing by asking these questions was to reveal something about these Pharisees for them and others to see. He's trying to show them who they are. He wanted them to learn something about themselves. He wanted them to see that their legalistic tendency to abide by these man-made guidelines was keeping them from fulfilling the grand work of the law, which is to love God and love their neighbor. That devotion to, to following these rules kept them from showing mercy to this man. It kept them from rejoicing with this man after he was healed. It kept them from seeing God's mercy revealed in Jesus who was right there in front of them. Here was God the Son, God in the flesh, right before them, setting people free and bringing healing to those who were suffering and they did not recognize it. They didn't see who he was. Their eyes were blinded and if we find ourselves committed to certain man-made guidelines for what we believe it means to be a righteous Christian in our own minds, well, we will also miss opportunities that the Lord gives us to see the needs of others and to work to help to care for them, to be merciful to them. Our passion to seek to make ourselves right with God by our own works will keep us from seeing Jesus for who he really is, that is, the Christ the Messiah, the Savior whom God sent to save sinners like us. The next thing that he does that we see here in verses 7 through 11 is that our pride will blind us from seeing our own desperate need for God's mercy. Verses 7 through 11, let's look at those again. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So at, at this meal, Jesus shares an, an observation that he made with the guests and how they picked out the places where they sat as they were coming in uh, to sit down at the table. Now, one of the traditions for my family is, is when we gather together for, for Christmas or some other family uh, gathering and meal at my parents' house. Uh, my, my mom will, will have the grandkids uh, make name tags for each place setting at the table. And uh, so when the, when the meal is ready and it's time to find a place to set the table, well, it's pretty easy. You just find where your name tag is by your plate, 
that's where you sit down. I appreciate that. Most of the time. But there have been occasions when I was placed on the piano bench at the dining room table. Piano benches are very hard and very uncomfortable and have absolutely no back support. Piano benches are never designed to be used as anything other than for a place for the piano player to sit while performing on the piano. They should never be used for seats at a dinner table. At least that's my opinion. <laughs> Unless, of course, you want to make a point to your guest about just where he stands with you in the pecking order, which may have been the point that was being made to me. But at the meal that Jesus was at here, it seems the guests were able to find their own places to sit. They're walking in, they're finding their own places to sit. It's kind of like a free-for-all, and no one wanted the piano bench. Or I should say, no one wanted to be at the lowest place of the table. You see, these, these, these tables uh, would have been near to the ground, and the guests would recline on pillows on, on one elbow uh, around the table, which, which, was, which was U-shaped. So it's a U-shaped table, and the host would have been at the bottom or at the center of the U, and the guests whom the host wanted to honor would, would be around the U, closest to him, and kind of then, you know, there's a pecking order from, from there on. They kind of go on from there. They're, those who are closest to the host would have been considered to have the most social capital, and those who were furthest away, you know, at the top of the U, they would have been considered to be, you know, a little bit lower on that social spectrum. It seems that this meal that Jesus was at, there was a lot of jockeying for position going on, which most likely happened at a lot of meals like this. So you see, there's this deep-seated desire for recognition that's within the heart of every sinner. This desire to be honored, this desire to be well thought of, it has been very notable to people's use of social media in our day. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Each person, you know, picks the most perfect picture of themselves to post on that. Or, or they craft this amazing description of what they are doing, what they've just accomplished, or what their son or daughter has just accomplished, and they post that on, on their Facebook page, and then... Later, they check back to see how many likes they've gotten and then who has liked it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. They, 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 they really love that recognition. Jesus points out the sinful desire to put ourselves first ahead of others by using the example of this dinner party. Again, he's just trying to, to just hold up a mirror, you know, for the people here to allow them to see themselves, take a good look at themselves, and maybe get to know themselves better. Uh, Luke refers to this as a parable. It's a, it's a wedding feast, he says, where, which one of the, the greatest occasions for social importance to be displayed in any community in those days. He told them to imagine that instead of coming in and taking the highest place at the table, to instead take the lowest place. For how embarrassing would it be when, you know, you take the highest place and the host will walks in and sees you there and says, well, you know, sorry, you, you, you need to move down here. 
because someone more important than you has arrived. And of course, everyone else has taken their seats. He's not going to move everybody. So he's just going to take you from this one spot and put you at the lowest place, which nobody had taken yet. So how embarrassing that would be, you know, to have to give up your place for someone else who's considered to be more honored than you and then be forced to do that walk of shame down to the lowest place. He said, wouldn't it be far better for the host to see you at a lower place and to then move you up to a place of more honor? Wouldn't it be better to humble yourself the first time rather than to be humbled by the host when he moves you down? Now, don't miss the point here. Jesus is not encouraging us, you know, to be disingenuous with our humility. He's not giving us a foolproof scheme to try out in order to draw attention to ourselves in a, in a good way at parties. He's not encouraging us to go and, you know, maybe sit at the kids' table, you know, uh, so that the host of the meal will, will, will walk in and then make a big fuss over you. What are you? Why are you sitting there? You should be up here. You deserve to be, you know, in a, in a, in a higher place. He's not telling us uh, to, to do this. No, no. Notice again what Jesus says in verse 11, which is the key application in this passage. Verse 11, he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice that each of the main verbs here are passives. That is, you won't humble yourself. If you won't humble yourself, then you will be humbled by another. If you do humble yourself, you will then be exalted by another. It will happen to you. That's what these are. These are divine passives, for it is God that's doing the humbling and the exalting in verse 11. If you seek to exalt yourself in this life, what will actually happen in the end, at the day of judgment, is that you will be humbled by God. If you seek to raise yourself above others in your life, that's your mode of operation. At the end, at the day of judgment, God's going to humble you. You will be humbled. It's God that's doing the humbling. It's God that's doing the exalting here. But if you do humble yourself in this life, again, God will be the one exalting you in the end, at the day of judgment. So just think about that. You, know, you humble yourself in this life. Now, you, you may be looked down by others. You may be thought less of. But you're, but, but you're thought less of those, those same people who are all trying to seek recognition, seek honor from other people. And it's God who's the one that's watching. As Jesus was, was watching and noticing how the people acted here at this meal. So once again, our Lord is using this meal to help all of those who were there to learn a little more about themselves. If you have participated on a competitive sports team, or if even you, you follow a particular sports team as a fan, then you no doubt have heard about one of the key practices 
that almost every team uses now, and that is film study. Teams watch video of the teams and the players that they are preparing to compete against in order to get to know them, to know their key plays, to know, to know their tendencies, to know their weaknesses. It's, it's a great way to prepare a game plan for how a team can expose the weaknesses of another team in order to beat them on the game field or court. But if a team is really serious about being successful and getting better, they will not only watch video of the opposing teams, they will also watch video of themselves. That's key, to watch video of themselves. For you see, it's also important to know your own tendencies, to know your own weaknesses. I remember doing this on Sunday afternoons with my high school football team. You know, before we, we, we'd watch the video of the team that we we're going to be prepared to play uh, that next week, we would first watch the game tape of our own game two nights before. Let me tell you, that's a humbling experience. There you are on the big screen. You're there, along with your whole team and coaches watching, how you played, how you did. There it is. Of course, the famous uh, quote is, the film don't lie. The film don't lie. You see how you played. You see what you did. I, I always remember Coach Pierce, our, our head football coach, when he would yell, stop the tape. Stop the tape. And he'd walk up to, 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 to the screen, and then he'd point out a certain player and show him what he did wrong and what he should have done instead. Just seeing yourself exposed like that you know, provides you with the kind of knowledge about yourself that you could never get without doing something like that. So ha having that kind of knowledge about yourself helped immensely with your humility. And here's Jesus doing something similar in this passage. Of course, they didn't have video, but Jesus, like a good coach, was observing. He was noticing, it says, how they chose the places of honor while they were coming in to the dinner. And he says what he says in verses 8 through 10 to provide them with this knowledge about themselves, that they really did this. They really showed that they were proud, that they all believed that they deserved to sit in the place of honor so that they could receive this recognition amongst their peers. Jesus is trying to tell them they really need to adjust their own self-understanding. This is a problem for them. They need to face it. They need to deal with it. For you see, the root of humility is knowledge. The root of humility is knowledge. Knowing yourself, knowing what you are really like inside, knowing your own heart, and knowing who you are in comparison with God, with God and his holiness, with God and his greatness, with God and his majesty. It is knowing your sin and knowing what place, I'm sorry, what, what price was paid for you to be redeemed from your sin on the cross by the sinless and eminently faithful Son of God. If you have that kind of knowledge, if you have that kind of self-understanding, you'll be humble. 
if you know yourself to be one who deserves condemnation and hell for your sin and unbelief, you'll be overwhelmingly grateful for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you will not be the one who ever walks into a room believing that you should be sitting in the place of honor. Rather, you will know you deserve the piano bench. You deserve that place. And if you get it, you'll be grateful. We need to know ourselves. We need that kind of knowledge. That is what will lead us to humility. That is what will bring us to the point of repentance, which leads to life. Humility leads to to exaltation, it says, because the humble person knows they are guilty. The humble person knows that he or she is a sinner who needs his sins forgiven, and so they will cry out to the Lord for mercy. The humble person has that kind of knowledge. But of course, the opposite of that is is ignorance. Ignorance of your, your heart. Ignorance of who you really are. And that's what leads to pride. Ignorance is the root of pride. For ignorance of who we really are will result in our never genuinely repenting of our sin. For we will never naturally believe that we need to. The prideful person exalts himself because he really believes he is far greater than he actually is. He doesn't know himself. He has ignored his coaches when they stopped the tape and and showed him and everyone else those plays where he missed his block or he was in the wrong position showing that he really didn't know what he was doing. They'll instead just blame somebody else. It's coach's fault. For proud people, when Jesus speaks like this, they just refuse to listen. And, And thus they miss their opportunity to humble themselves, to confess their sins, and receive the forgiveness and the hope of exaltation to eternal life from our Lord in glory. So friends, pride is deadly. Pride is deadly. Not because it might lead to us getting embarrassed in a certain social setting, but because it will keep us from seeing our own desperate need for forgiveness of our sins. And God is merciful. He has sent the Lord Jesus into the world to save sinners. And here in this passage, Jesus was at a dinner party full of proud people who needed him but didn't didn't see him. Missed who he was. They were blind to their own need for him. They saw him heal a man with a bad case of edema, yet they didn't realize that each of them had an even more deadly condition, that of pride, which if not brought to Jesus for healing, would end up leading them straight to hell. Humility then comes down to knowledge. Do you really know yourself rightly? Do you really know Jesus and who he is? Do you recognize your own desperate need for the mercy and grace that Jesus won for you? Humble yourselves then. Humble yourselves before him. Confess your sins and begin to experience the grace of God which will lift you up 
out of your lowly sinful condition and set you at God's banquet table in the kingdom where there will be no piano bench for you or for any of God's children. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we do thank you for your word and I pray that your word has done its work and will continue to do its work in our hearts. Lord, I pray for humility. That is such a challenge for proud Americans to humble ourselves before you and others. So Lord, help us. We need your mercy. We need your grace. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.